This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 11th. Longtime federal NDP leader Ed Broadbent has died. Here to reflect on Broadbent's legacy, the current NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, as well as a former prime minister who describes Broadbent as a giant in politics. And the federal government was warned immigration would make homes more expensive. Two years ago, the Power Panel reacts to that revelation. Begin tonight the death of longtime NDP leader Ed Broadbent. Broadbent led the federal New Democrats for more than 14 years and through four elections. He was known for helping establish the NDP as a viable option for voters that were disenchanted by years of liberal and conservative governments. The Broadbent Institute announced his death in a statement this afternoon. I'm joined now by the CBC's chief political correspondent, Rosemary Barton. Uh, Rosemary, uh, thanks for joining us. You had one of the last interviews with Ed Broadbent last fall after he he wrote his book. What stood out to you then? Yeah, I I wouldn't have thought it was one of the last interviews, frankly. He was was in pretty good shape. He was uh, feisty as usual. He had lots to say. Uh, The the interview was about his book, Seeking Social Democracy, where he sat down with a a number of different people and sort of reflected on what social democracy uh, meant to him through his career and and the fight that he brought for justice and equality in, in Canada. But as always, uh, as you said off the top there, he did also speak his mind on some some issues, both that he had gone through and, and th- that we see now. I'll give you two examples. One was the 2008 coalition attempt mm. uh, when he was asked by Jack Layton to reach out to Jean Chrétien, who's celebrating his 90th birthday today, to start a conversation about whether they could come up with some sort of agreement between the two of them. He told me in that interview um, in October that in retrospect, it maybe wasn't the right idea. Not that he was anti-coalition, even though he turned one down with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, but that uh, because of the leadership, which he called the weak leadership of the Liberal Party at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and because they were bringing in the bloc as part of a partner, and because of the way Stephen Harper <clears throat> was portraying and would go on to portray coalitions, it was maybe... Um, not the right decision, he says. Uh, I also asked him, obviously, about the current deal between the Liberals and the NDP, the Supply and Confidence Agreement, and there, too, he had uh, interesting thoughts. He, he there thought that perhaps the agreement uh, was for, or is for too long, right. that if the NDP is trying to elicit things from the government, that's a good thing, but you also want to be able to demonstrate to Canadians that you've got things for them and that you, you can hold the government to account. So even this past fall, deeply following politics, um, deeply committed to the things that he had always been committed to and willing at 87 to, to speak his mind pretty freely. In 87, his, the peak of his popularity was 1987, yeah. right? Yeah. He, he was actually yeah. in first place in, in public opinion polls then. In the run-up to the 88 election, he opposed free trade. He wanted to pull out of NATO. Very different sort yeah. of policies of where the yeah. country is now. But how, how would you assess Ed Broadbent's legacy? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about who he was uh, sort of combating at the time, Brian Mulroney, John Turner, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he is amongst those sort of elder statesmen, the the men that did pretty incredible things for this country at a, at a critical moment. He was important to the patriation of the Constitution. It, it was obviously not just him, but he, he was pushing Trudeau Sr. to get Indigenous rights embedded into the Constitution and, and, and to establish the Charter. And he did that to the detriment of his own success inside his party. There were people, for instance, in Saskatchewan, who were not happy with him at the time. Uh, free trade is another example. He pushed back on that, but, but some people believe that he didn't push back hard enough. And again, he suffered for 
for uh, some of the positions that he took. But really, I think his legacy is about what he did for the NDP. Mm-hmm. It, it, it won the most number of seats before the Orange Crush and Jack Layton. As you pointed out, he became popular. He became a viable yeah. option. And when I talked to him back in October and we talked about how sometimes the NDP is portrayed as the social conscience of Parliament, he, he, he still sees, obviously, that as an important part. But, but even now, he believes the NDP is a viable option for government. And he certainly worked hard to, to get it to that place. How, how would you describe Ed Broadbent's approach to politics. His approach is very different than the era of today. Yeah, and I mean, that's also about the era, right? I mean, there's no social media. Things were were very different. TV was introduced when he was um, inside the House of Commons. We're talking about a different time. But I would say even now, uh, lots of people will describe him as friendly and charming, and those things are all true. But he was also a really staunch, fierce combatant. When you think about that uh, 1984 debate with Turner and Mulroney, and and the way he portrayed himself and presented himself during that debate. But he was fundamentally respectful. And and I think that's probably the difference between Mm -hmm. what you might see today. And we talked a little bit about that, too, um, this past fall, and his concerns about the tone and rhetoric that we see in politics these days. Um, And part of that was because he did believe... um, that he was fighting for Canadians. He believed that uh, his job was to try and bring some equality uh, to the country and that that was behind what he was doing. And, and he still talked to lots of people. He talked to Jagmeet Singh, he talked to other NDP MPs, and he, he still tried to remain deeply engaged in the cause um, that he gave his life to, frankly. Okay, Rosie, uh, thank you so thank much. You. That's the CBC Chief Political Correspondent, Rosemary Barton. Well, as NDP leader, Broadbent faced off against four different prime ministers. Brian Mulroney was one of them. Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking our call, sir. Happy to be with you. I wonder, sir, if you could tell me what your reaction was when you'd heard that Ed Broadbent had passed away. Well, I've known Broadbent, Ed Broadbent, for forever. And was in the House of Commons with him for a long time. And worked with him after. And um, Ed Broadbent was a giant on the Canadian political scene. Uh, he'd have been prime minister had he been leading any other party, uh, but he chose to lead his party uh, to great degrees of success. And so I viewed him as a major contributor to Canadian unity, to Canadian public policy. And he was an extremely pleasant, delightful guy to know. Was he a pleasant and delightful guy during question period in the House of Commons? So what was it like to be across from Ed Broadbent in, in Parliament? He was, he was anything but pleasant or delightful <laughs> during question period. You can, be, you can bet your bottom dollar on that. He was a tough and strong debater, and he made uh, the case for the NDP very effectively so. And that's what you expect in the House of Commons and in television debates for the leadership of the country. And Ed was um, was quite brilliant at it. <clears throat> you said, sir, that he would have been prime minister had he been the leader of any other party. But it looked for a while, in around 1987, that he might have become prime minister as leader of the New Democratic Party. I've got a, the front page of a New York Times from November of 1987 in front of me, where it says, a leftist leader surging in Canada. And it talks about a poll in the Globe and Mail at the time, where Ed Broadbent was up 14 points over you. Uh, how worried yes. were you at that point in time? <laughs> well, look, you don't like to see a headline like that, <laughs> but I, I really wasn't worried because as I used to say in the House of Commons to Ed, uh, I want to advise the leader of the 
NDP party not to start measuring the drapes at 24 Sussex because Neil and I planned to stay there for a little while. No, he was, um, uh, you know, he was a welcome figure in the Canadian political scene. He spoke uh, very effectively with good humor. And he was known uh, across the country as a very good guy, a very nice man. So, uh, well, that was not the kind of headline you'd like to see in the morning when, with your cornflakes, if you're prime minister. Uh, I, I really thought that we were going to carry the day with free trade. Uh, I wonder, sir, if you could, how would you describe Ed Broadbent's legacy? Uh, until Jack Layton's uh, historic breakthrough, uh, he was the most successful leader of the New Democratic Party, getting his uh, caucus into the 40s. How would you describe Ed Broadbent's legacy? Oh, very strong legacy. Uh, his legacy, he, he was on the right side of history. On the national unity debates, uh, he was he, on the right side of history. Uh, in terms of hum- all human rights uh, debates, including the debate for Nelson Mandela's liberation. Uh, no, he had a very strong... In fact, uh, when he chose to retire after the 1988 election, and he visited with me, and I asked him what he would like to do, what he planned to do, and he said he'd love to take over the Institute for, for Human Rights in Montreal. And I appointed him there for, I think, seven or eight years, where he did a fabulous job in terms of the promotion of human rights with a distinctly Canadian signature. He was on the wrong side of the aisle, I guess, for you politically, but as you say, on the right side of history, on the right side uh, of a yeah. lot of key issues uh, of, of the day. You mentioned Nelson uh, Mandela. Uh, how, how would you describe his approach to politics? I, I mean, there, there is the cut and thrust of question period and the, yeah. the, the combative nature of it all, but how would you, yeah. he was a very dignified man. He was dignified, he was had a good sense of humor, and he was a, um, he was a humanist. I would define his general political thrust in that way. And uh, he was a, <clears throat> I consider him a great parliamentarian, and a major contributor to Canadian progress during the decade or decade and a half we were together. How do you think Canadians uh, should remember Ed Broadbent, Mr. Mulroney? With respect and affection and admiration. That's the nature of his contribution. Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has tweeted out his condolences following the passing of Ed Broadbent. Trudeau said Canada is better off because of Ed Broadbent's selfless service, an advocate for equality and champion for justice. His commitment to helping others never wavered. He leaves behind an incredible legacy, one that will no doubt continue to inspire people across the country. To the Broadbent family, to his friends, and to all of the Canadians who are mourning the passing of this visionary leader, I'm keeping you in my thoughts and I'm sending you my deepest condolences. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh called Ed Broadbent a mentor and a friend. Singh says Broadbent was a lifelong champion of our movement and our party and that he was always generous with his time. Jagmeet Singh joins us now from Kingston. Mr. Mr. Singh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your statement touched on Ed Broadbent's generosity with his time. We've heard the same thing uh, from Ann McGrath, from Brian Topp. How was Ed Broadbent generous to you as a leader of the Democratic Party? Well, uh, he was someone I called right when I became leader. I asked him for advice. And since that first call, when I asked him for advice, he never said no to me. 
I, I asked him for so many different things. He campaigned with me in 2019. We walked the Lansdowne Farmer's Market in Ottawa together. We uh, spent lots of time together chatting about the, the future of the party and, and decisions. So I asked for his advice on the agreement. and He was there for me and encouraged me. We uh, were just together a couple months ago at the Progress, the Progress Institute that he started, the Broadband Institute, uh, dinner in Toronto. Um, there's a picture circulating of, of uh, us all together when we listened to President Biden in Parliament, where my wife, my, my daughter, and, and Ed were all together. Uh, we've had lots of uh, really special moments. But most importantly, he was very actively a mentor to me, helping me through getting uh, my feet on the ground as a new leader and navigating federal politics and just always there for me. He would always answer my call and not just answer my call, but answer whatever help I needed. If I needed to meet up, if I needed him to come in and meet with my team, he, he always said yes. You say you reached out to him for advice when you first became leader. What's the best piece of advice he gave you about the role that you were taking on? Well, one of the things he said to me, and he repeated this uh, many times when we would chat, was that sometimes New Democrats have this debate. Uh, can we stay consistent with our values or should we try to focus on winning? And he made it really clear that we need to do both that it's not an either or, it's a both. We need to be consistent with our values and we need to be in a position to make life better for working people. And that was something that he really emphasized and it was a big part of his legacy. He contributed to the movement to say he wasn't trying to be the conscious of parliament. He wanted to be the next prime minister. And that was a vision that I, I really took to heart. And then when we were able to bring in something like the National Dental Care Program, he said, this is exactly why we're New Democrats to force government uh, to bring in things that we can bring them in ourselves, but to force the change, not to just raise concerns, but to bring in material changes to people's lives, like ensuring that people can get their teeth looked after, saving the money and improving their health. This is why we became New Democrats. So he was really encouraging and supportive, but also really pushed this idea that we need to fight to be in a position to make life better for people. You, you said that you reached out to him uh, to discuss the, the supply and confidence agreement uh, that you have with, with the, the federal liberals right now that is expected to run until the election in 2025. He was a little bit critical of it, though, in one of the last interviews he did with, with Rosemary Barton, saying he felt it was for too long. It, it went on for too long and, and it maybe limited a bit of your leverage. Did, did he ever speak about that with you, uh, you know, uh, when you were considering this or when you were seeking his advice on that? Uh, what, what did he advise you on, on, on this agreement? We actually chatted right after that interview and, and he made it really clear. He said, listen, I want you to know, I believe in everything you're doing. My major concern is how do we make these liberals do what they say they're going to do? And two, how do you get the credit? And I, and I chuckled because... That is something that Ed always kept in his mind. He didn't just want us to be able to make a difference for people now. He also wanted us to be elected in the future to continue to make a difference in people's lives. So he was really concerned about how we could get that credit. And he knew that liberals would backtrack on things. So he wanted to make sure that we had ways to force them to deliver. So I appreciate that advice. Uh, but like I said, he was very proud that we were able to use our power to make some big changes in people's lives. And he, he made that really clear to me. I wonder, uh, Mr. Singh, how would you assess Ed Broadbent's legacy? Uh, not, not just for the new Democratic Party. He's clearly in that Jack Layton, Ed Broadbent, Tommy Douglas sort of, sort of stratosphere uh, for the new Democrats, but for Canadian politics and, and for the country at large. Well, I would put it to you this way. Whenever we would be at events, 
I would always find him in the crowd if I knew he was there and say, folks, Ed Broadbent is in the crowd today, and he is who I want to be when I grow up. And I said that, and every time I said it, Ed would laugh as if it was the first time I said that joke. Uh, he was very generous with his humor as well as with his time. And the reason why I said that is the reason why he is so special is that he never stopped fighting. He was an elected official. He was a leader of a party. Then another leader, Jack Layton, asked him to run again, and he did it. And then when he retired from, politi from political life, he didn't stop giving back. He founded a progressive institute, which is now a powerful voice for working people again. And that is a part of who he is. His legacy is he never stopped. He never stopped fighting for people. Even while retired, even having started an institute, he was a big mentor to me as the eighth leader of the New Democratic Party. So he never stopped caring about people, about the movement. And that's a big part of why he is someone that I'll always remember. I, I am sad today that he has passed, but I am so honored to have known him and to have had the, the privilege of receiving his guidance and wisdom and uh, someone that I can look up to as how one should live their life to constantly and always find a way to give back to build a better future. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the time, sir. Thank you. Okay, we're going to head over now to the foyer of the House of Commons, where former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien was just reacting to the death of former NDP leader Ed Broadbent. But he was a very good MP, was elected in Oshawa, and he was a professor of university, and he became quickly the leader, replaced David Lewis, and, the, and his previous his predecessor was Tommy Douglas. And uh, during the patriation of the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedom, you know, we had, there was some disagreement within uh, every political parties, and uh, we had many discussions to that effect. And a few times we even had, I had communication with Tommy Douglas and with uh, David Lewis to that effect. And, uh, and uh, in Parliament, he was always very civilized. He was never nasty. Uh, we had uh, tough differences, but it's like playing hockey. You know, you can have, have, go to a hockey game and you can't bomb a guy on the ramp or be bumped at the, after the game. You can have a, a beer together. So that was uh, politics is that. You know, we all elected to do our best. We might have disagreement, but everybody wants to do the, a job. Ideas vary. It's what is democracy. And it is very good that we can disagree on things, but be united uh, for the goal of making a better country. How do you think Canadians will remember him? Hmm? How do you think Canadians should remember him? Oh, that is very noble to be a politician. And he was of the, in that category. Do you think that this kind of friendship between different political parties is being lost now? Do you think political parties can still have beers together after? I don't know. I'm not on the hill. But uh, for me, I never took it very personally. Always, sometimes I would say that it is easier to be friendly with a guy in front of you because the guy behind you sometimes are unhappy with you. If you don't name them ministers, you know, they are not very... So on someone to take over your job too. So the front is not the same. It is we're confronted in the House of Commons. And so many guys on the opposition became quite good friends. And, uh, and Broadbent was one of them. Do you have a favorite political memory uh, with Mr. Broadbent? Nothing. He was always there when 
there was a good cause. Even after he quit politics, uh, I was involved in some problem or occasions where we needed to be be partisan. I was involved in a couple of international statement group for disarmament, for example, nuclear disarmament and so on. I remember we signed a document myself, Joe Clark and him. You know, and we're happy to be together because we believe in the same thing. But in the House of Commons, sometimes it looks worse for you guys because you love the show. And, uh, you know, but uh, we're human beings we'll, uh, and we all want to do the best and serve the people of Canada. When was the last time you would have seen Mr. Broadbent? Well, I saw him irregularly, you know, social occasion and so on. I met him probably two or three months ago, but I don't remember where. And it's always friendly. Is it the political discourse of Mr. Biden? Maybe the political discourse of Mr. Biden in the last year, I don't know. He was there, I think. But I saw him at other occasions. And only, of course, he came out less than me. We were not the last poulet of the last winter. You're here on the Hill. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about some of your memories as, as a prime minister that, that, that you're proud of? Oh, but, Big you know, country. it is nice for the people uh, uh, to have organized such an occasion. Uh, uh, there will be a lot of former ministers and members of parliament and uh, pers- my family will be there and people coming from all across Canada, uh, many of the leaders, the political leaders, have accepted apparently to talk on videos. You know, I, I told them, uh, not ask them to come, because, you know, all the politicians have been at many of these occasions. And uh, so apparently they have a good film, but I've not seen it. So, And it is... Uh, It will be a very good occasion to celebrate uh, uh, that I'm 90. So it's 30 years as former prime, that I became prime minister, and 60 years I became member of parliament, and 90 years as uh, that I was born today. So some say the triple cor- crown. Unique for me. Three anniversaires. Trente, soixante, quatre-vingt-dix, alors ça n'arrive pas souvent. Et je suis chanceux, je suis en bonne santé. Et puis, euh, j'ai envie de continuer. Un jour, je vais disparaître, mais il n'y a rien qui presse. Et comment vous dites que le Canada a changé depuis vos 90 ans? A lot. Et nous toujours pensons que c'est terrible. Vous savez, j'ai commencé à m'involver dans la politique en 1956. Aucun de vous n'était pas né. And I was a president of the Young Liberal of University Laval and for Canada. And I never wake up in the morning and the headlines were, Canada had a good day yesterday. Never saw that headline. I think we might have at least one in that period of time. But it is, good news is not a news, and a bad news is a news. You know, a dog biting a man is not a news. But a man biting a dog, it will be a hell of a big news. And it will be, in fact, two animals who do the same thing. Thank you very much. Happy birthday, Matthew. Thank you.
All right, that was former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien in Ottawa to celebrate his 90th birthday, offering his reflections on the passing of former NDP leader Ed Broadbent. Longtime New Democratic Party leader Ed Broadbent has died. First elected to Parliament in 1968, he led the federal NDP for 14 years. He always insisted that he was an ordinary Canadian, representing other ordinary Canadians. Here's the CBC's Hannah Thibodeau with a look back on Broadbent's career. He was the type of politician Canadians felt they knew on a first-name basis. Ed Broadbent first ran for the NDP in 1968. He became leader in 1975. He moved the NDP to the left, and the NDP moved up in the polls. The 1988 election was a campaign fought over free trade, and it pushed Broadbent's NDP to the brink of a breakthrough. Canadians are not about to build a Canada on the values of John Turner's vision of Bay Street as a replacement for Brian Mulroney's Wall Street. <laughs> Opinion polls prior to the election suggested the party was surging. At the time, Broadbent became the most successful NDP leader in history, with 43 seats. But he fell short of his own high hopes. There had been an expectation the NDP would at least become official opposition. After an election, I sit down and I, I am with my wife here and uh, we think of what is good in terms of our personal life, what is good for my party, and what is good for my country. The next year, Broadbent stepped down as leader. But his political career wasn't over just yet. After more than a decade outside of the House of Commons, he was lured back by Jack Layton. Who's back? Ed is back. Say what? And he reintroduced himself to a new generation of voters with a rap video. It's time for voting, NDP. And won a seat for the NDP in Ottawa. If Jack Layton hadn't made a certain phone call last November, it wouldn't have happened. In 2005, he announced he wouldn't seek re-election. He wanted to care for his wife, Lucille, who died of breast cancer in 2006. In 2011, he helped establish a political think tank aimed at exploring social democratic ideas, bearing his name, the Broadbent Institute. The NDP continued to turn to Broadbent for advice about the party he devoted so much of his life to. Hannah Thibodeau, CBC News, Ottawa. All right, we're going to bring in the power panel now for some reaction to this news and to discuss the legacy and impact of Ed Broadbent. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister, now chief of government relations at the University of Toronto. And here with me in the studio, Summa Strategies, Carlene Varian. Uh, thank you, gang. I appreciate you joining us. Andrew, uh, watching that video of Ed is back, it's like he invented TikTok about 16 years ago with the graphics in the background. Uh, you're a new Democrat, a former New Democrat cabinet minister. What, what's your reflections today with the passing of Ed Broadbent? You know, I, was, I was thinking about uh, Ed, and often I think his name comes up in the, in the party throughout, uh, you know, throughout the years since he's uh, you know, left active political life. He was a really larger-than-life character uh, within there. I mean, he's one of the first people, I guess he inherited the title, the best prime minister Canada never had from Robert Stanfield who was uh, thought that way for a long time. But, but Ed had a real connection. And, um, you know, for a guy with a PhD from U of T and a university professor and then going into Parliament in 68, f 
fighting, uh, you know, largely fighting off the waffle in 75 to become leader. You know, he had this really kind of transformational approach to, to politics, and it was really driven by, and we've talked about his core beliefs, but it was this belief in kind of industrial democracy. He, uh, today we talk about it for the marginalized, but, but he was really one of the first uh, big leaders who was rethinking how the Canadian economy could work from a, a leftist, a socialist, a social democratic perspective to drive something very different uh, at the, um, you know, in the manufacturing sector. And we saw that all through his career. We saw that really leading up into, uh, into the 88 election where he was fighting uh, free trade. And, of course, uh, you know, afterwards, his uh, continued uh, uh, work, one of the rare politicians who got a second act, mm. uh, being able to, to set up the Institute and be able to engage a whole new generation of, of Canadians in those kind of values. Fascinating fellow. I mean, he was somebody I'd met uh, 40 years ago. I was just a teenager in high school uh, in the 1984 campaign when I first met him. And he, uh, he's not exactly, I, I'm not sure you would describe him as charismatic. He was never, a, you know, one of those guys who stood at the stage and really commanded it. But there was always something just super engaging about him. I think because he was so interested in everybody that was in the room beyond himself. Yeah, sincerity too, right? Sincerity mm-hmm. is charismatic in, in, in a lot of ways in political life. James, I know your political life, uh, not Ed Robbins' first act, but in the comeback uh, that we showed the video of there, you overlapped uh, with him in the House of Commons. Uh, what are your thoughts today? Uh, I did. It's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. He, he was um, always humble and very kind to me. He was almost sort of more grandfatherly. Uh, you know, he, we... We sat not far from each other, and I remember a couple times on duty days, I mean, his riding was Ottawa Centre, so downtown Ottawa, so he wasn't that far uh, from home, so he would often come into the house in late night debates and sit there, and I would, you know, go up to him and I would invite him to sort of reminisce and talk about the 1988 campaign and talk about the history of his time in, in politics as a political leader, and he was always very thoughtful, and he, would, he didn't heckle very much. Uh, again, maybe he was a, a little bit older and had a little less sort of outward fire internally. It was always there, of course, uh, for him, uh, but if he didn't like something that you said he would just sort of give you a, a stern squint and, and wait for his turn but he deeply respected parliament he really thought that the chamber mattered he thought that the room mattered he thought that the, the moment to allow people to speak in full sentences and full paragraphs and to develop an argument and put it out there and to have an exchange that these moments mattered and it was a it was a it was a venue for a clash of ideas and he was a very thoughtful person in that regard and, and i guess maybe the biggest compliment i could pay i mean not being a new democrat but respecting that he was a movement New Democrat. He was a movement progressive. Uh, and the, the, the establishment of the Broadband Institute, and, and I think what you probably see a lot on social media today, and I imagine what will be said in the coming weeks as we head towards uh, his, his wake and, and, and his funeral and his memorial, is that you'll, you'll see multiple generations of New Democrats um, paying testament uh, and tribute to his accomplishment in life and the inspiration that he had and the mentorship that he offered to others mm-hmm. who he, he hoped would come into public life and, and to carry on his legacy of having respect for parliament and respect for ideas. And I think that's a, that's a legacy that all political parties um, should model. Yeah, Shachi, that's certainly something that Brian Topp, Bob Ray, and McGrath, uh, even Brian Mulroney all talked about his generosity, his decency, and, and it resonated with Canadians in a way, Shachi, where I've referenced this a bunch of times, but there was a story on the front page of the New York Times in 1987 about Ed Broadbent. The idea, you know, back when newspapers were newspapers, right, in 87, the fact that he would be leading in the polls and be on the front page of the biggest newspaper in the world at the day spoke to uh, the moment he created in 1987. 
Well, first and foremost, he was a gentleman, and mm. that is really, really, really important at a time in Canadian politics where gentility feels like it's it's flatlining, and it's you know somebody read a decency in politics, their last rights. Ed Broadbent was a symbol of the best of Canadian politics. And more than that, interestingly, he was also a symbol when we look retrospectively at how much Canada, Canadian politics, Canadian demographics and the economy has changed and how much it hasn't changed. You know, Andrew just referenced uh, the importance of looking at dealing with the economy in a different way, particularly it, through the lens of manufacturing. In the early 1980s, one in five, 20% of Canadian workers worked in manufacturing. Mm. Today, that number has cratered by half. It's down to 11%. When we look at union membership, that has declined by 25% since Ed Broadbent's time. And now you see a full-on fight between the Conservatives and the NDP. For, for the hearts and minds and votes of union members. When you look at the way politics gave leaders time and space to grow and build a base and build a connection with voters, he had, as leader of the NDP, four attempts to lead yeah. his party and elections. He led them to that high watermark of 20% of the popular vote in 1988. And I mention that specifically because we tend to focus on Jack Layton I'm not taking anything away from Jack Layton, but we focus on the orange wave and and that 20 and the and the and the accomplishments that he had, or the fact that under Jagmeet Singh, the party sits at about between 17 and 20 percent of the popular vote. Ed Broadbent did that before anybody did that, and that's in part why, including yes, he had a second and a third act with the Institute, but it's why he was such an important validator for Jagmeet Singh and in modern politics because he had uh, a, 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 a longevity in politics that most leaders do not have today. People will not remember, no offense to Aaron O'Toole, people will not remember Aaron O'Toole. They will not remember Andrew Scheer in the same way. They will remember Ed Broadbent as not only a transformational political leader, but as one whose legacy and longevity will well outlast and outlive his own time uh, on this earthly realm. So, Carlene, the, the, the way people speak about Ed Broadbent's approach mm -hmm. to politics, it, clearly he approached it and, mm -hmm. and, and conducted it in a very different way than we see right now. And as Shachi points out, getting four cracks at national elections over 14 years, that is inconceivable in contemporary politics. You, uh, you ask any recent uh, opposition side leader of the Liberal or Conservative Party in the last right. 15 years, and, and they'll tell you that it certainly isn't that way anymore. Um, there's been a lot of really uh, touching tributes uh, paid by some of Mr. Broadbent's peers uh, over the course of the last few hours. But another angle and another insight, I think, into the type of career he had and the type of man that he was um, comes from a place that people don't always necessarily know to look. Um, as someone who spent most of my career on Parliament Hill as a staffer, I, I know that one of the best ways to get the sense of the true character of a, an elected political official is to, is to know what their staff um, and the advisors mm. in the community around Parliament Hill think of them. Um, and uh, 
having been on the Hill at the time that Mr. Broadbent was um, serving in his second era as, as a member of Parliament for Ottawa Centre, uh, there was no doubt that he was somebody who was revered, um, admired, um, greatly loved by uh, the community of, of New Democrat advisors and staffers in the Parliament Hill community. Um, and certainly today I've heard um, so many anecdotes um, and, and memories from folks who looked up to him, folks who were inspired by him to embark on their own careers in politics. Um, James touched on that in terms of referencing the multiple generations um, mm. that, that Broadbent touched on. Um, I know there's probably a lot of folks uh, in, uh, in and around Parliament Hill tonight who are, who are toasting to, uh, to Ed and, and telling stories about him. No, I remember when I was a young man and first started to pay attention to politics. In my worldview, there was Ed Broadbent and there was John Crosby because he was my yep. MP in St. John's West, yep. two very <laughs> different uh, politicians, uh, uh, but certainly not the type uh, you, you see today. Okay, uh, we're, we're going to switch gears now and we're going to talk about some news today on the housing file. And this is from a story from the Canadian press who reported today that public servants warned the government two years ago that immigration levels could affect housing affordability, with the Deputy Minister of Immigration saying in 2022 that housing construction had not kept pace with population growth. The Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland was asked about this today. For immigration to work as a Canadian economic strategy, we have to be sure that housing supply keeps up. And that is what our government is absolutely focused on doing. And I think we do have to be sure that our immigration system is working as intended. Okay, that was uh, Christian Freeland today uh, in uh, Toronto, I believe is where she was. Uh, James, I'm not sure I heard a clear answer there uh, from the Deputy Prime Minister as to why they didn't necessarily heed the advice uh, from, from the civil service that immigration, uh, unless we get the housing thing fixed, is going to become a problem. What, what do you make of uh, this uh, revelation? <coughs> it's a delicate subject matter for all political parties, but it's an extraordinarily important public policy because when it comes to social programs, demography really is destiny in terms of the pressure on our programs, on our infrastructure. And right now we happen to be talking about real estate because we're talking about as well about interest rates, the housing crisis, the ability of people to get into ho homes that they can afford and places that they want to live. But it's fair to assume that the public policy challenges around housing can be ported over to the challenges that we're seeing with schools, can be ported over to challenges that we're going to have when it comes to public transit, can also be interpreted into, into the challenges that we're seeing in hospitals and emergency rooms and the stresses that we have across the country. And I worry that politics will sink the very important public policy debate that we need to have about the appropriate levels of in immigration into this country, what it means to our economy, what it means to our social fabric, and what it means for our capacity to care for one another in a country where we do believe in an ethic of common provision when it comes to social programs. And so right now we're talking about housing and for politicians to avoid the question, I think, is a detriment to a really important public policy question about massive rates of new immigrants and what it means for infrastructure, housing, social programs, emergency rooms, schools, and our ability to, to sustain a growing urbanized population that can't sustain this level of growth. And we're, we're, we're on the cusp of a really important public policy conversation. And I think avoiding answers and avoiding this debate is, is going to be to a real detriment for the country. Andrew, there's certainly an urgency around uh, confronting the housing challenges in the government now with a new focus, uh, certainly on, on their policies and, and spending priorities, and they have leveled off the immigration targets at 500,000. Um, 
but you know, when you look at where they are uh, in, in public opinion polls, a, a, a new survey from Abacus has them down about 17 points now. The bounce they got before Christmas is gone. Uh, is it lack of attention to things like warnings like this that, that has helped contribute to the situation the government finds itself in? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the one of the problems that this government has had has been figuring out how to actually use the levers of government to drive its public policy objectives. I mean, even it, the immigration case is a great example of that. There are three major components to immigration. There's the refugee numbers, there are those that are brought in for family reunification, and then there are those which is really what the underlying argument is for immigration in this country, those who are meant to drive forward uh, GDP growth and to help uh, Canada maintain its uh, brain gain. The the Liberals, when they came in, decided to ramp up the refugee numbers first, followed by the family reunification, and are still, up until last year, largely using the same uh, economic immigrant numbers that, the, uh, that were there for the Harper government. And so they, I think, really kind of misunderstood. They've upset, at least, how that uh, uh, social contract almost works around how immigration is supposed to be balanced. There was one other thing that happened that is somewhat outside of their control. And that is that there was a huge boost in the number of students that were, uh, number of right. university, uh, university and college students coming in. Why was that? That was largely because the Ontario government made a change to the way that private colleges could access the system. And so what we've seen over the last two years is a massive ramp up of a number of uh, people coming in from foreign destinations to take short-term programs with the hopes that they'll be able to get uh, some kind of an ability to stay in the country after. So you've got this kind of uh, disconnected immigration policy that then is putting all sorts of pressure uh, on communities today. And that's what they're going to have to figure out is how to, I don't know, quickly correct that. I'm surprised that they were only being advised of it two years ago as being a problem. Well, I mean, that we, we know, that's what we know about, yeah. right? And, you know, to the good work of Canadian press. And Carly, I wonder about this. It, it, it's interesting that Sean Fraser, as the housing minister, is tasked with kind of fixing this. He was the immigration minister at the time yep. that these warnings were issued. I, I mean, how big of a challenge is this for your crowd? Well, I, I have no doubt that there was a briefing note that said, if you're going to bring in more people, those people are going to need somewhere to live. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's not surprising to me. Um, but I suspect that it would also not be very difficult to find a number of briefing notes for cabinet ministers at a variety of departments that also said, Canada is experiencing one of the most acute labor shortages that it has in a generation. That labor shortage is the most acute in the skilled trains, tra trades, and in particular in the construction sector. Right. So I, I think, uh, you know, well, I mean, Andrew was absolutely bang on about the private career colleges, and that's one thing. But in a broader sense, this conversation that um, uh, that is sort of taking place in, in right of center and conservative circles right now is very dangerous, and it's happened before. Immigrants are a, an easy punching bag when something gets tough. Uh, the job market gets tough. Blame immigrants. The housing market gets challenging, and its affordability gets challenging. Uh, well, let's let's blame immigrants. They're they're an easy target. Who do we think is going to build the houses yeah. that we need? Um, I think we've got this issue totally backwards, um, and uh, and it needs to be presented from from the perspective of how we're going to solve the supply side issue um, of the housing issue. And a big part of that is going to have to be building our workforce. And right now, a hundred percent of our workforce growth is coming from immigration. Right, and, and Shachi, we are seeing some shifts in public opinion on, on immigration, not out of xenophobia or anything like that, but because of a scarce, well, in, scarcity in part, challenge. Yes. Right? Yes, no, but, but let's be real. In part, this does have to do because it's a very 
complicated issue. When we talk about immigration, you know, Andrew just put on a clinic in terms of explaining the different uh, groups of immigrants or, or people who come into the country and migrate to Canada. When we talk about the so-called immigration debate, and I talk about that, I, I am the daughter of, of immigrants to Canada, uh, what gets lost is the, the distinction and the delineation of who we're talking about and why different groups may or may not be important in terms of, of sewing the fabric of this country. And often what happens is the economic conversation around it gets subsumed by or replaced by to an extent, the xenophobic conversation around it. Uh, the last time we looked at this issue, more than two-thirds of Canadians were of the view that uh, immigrants needed to do more to fit in to Canadian uh, society or Canadian culture. At the same time, though, the vast majority also felt that immigration was incredibly important, not only to Canada's economy, but also to Canadian society. So there is a lot to untangle and unpack. And the reality is that not one leader of a single federal party in this country has the stones to actually unpack it because their dependence on fairly new voters in this country, people who have immigrated and received their own citizenship in swing ridings in places like Brampton and Richmond Hill, Ontario, in Richmond, British Columbia, and Surrey, British Columbia, is paramount to winning an election. So we cannot have, unfortunately, from a political standpoint, honest conversations about immigration. How much is too much? How few are too few? What is the impact of productivity? Have we used immigration as a crutch and not paid enough attention to productivity in this mm. country, to skills development? Like, this is a really complicated conversation that takes more than a couple of tweets or a soundbite. And the problem is nobody's willing to confront the conversation and have the really deep probing, untangling talk that's required to get the numbers right and to get the mix right. No, you make a good point there on the productivity because one of the other warnings is that immigration will boost GDP but not GDP per capita, which is a, a seen as a, a more accurate measure of productivity. It is an important conversation to have. We're out of time. We'll have to have it on another day. I want to thank you all for joining me today. Carlene Varian, Shachi Curl, James Warren, and Andrew Thompson. Thanks so much, gang. Thanks, David. Thanks. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.